You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Grow Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with Chris Horst. He is the Chief Advancement Officer at Hope International and co-author of Mission Drift and Rooting for Rivals. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Happy to be with you, Zach. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about Hope International and maybe specifically your role within the organization uh, and then maybe share some of what you guys have been up to lately that you're particularly excited about at Hope? Sure. So Hope International was born out of a spectacular failure. Uh, Our founder is very honest about the origins of Hope and, and how it began with his attempts and his church's attempts to serve and respond to a very like impoverished community right after the collapse of the Soviet Union in Zaporozhye, Ukraine. And they first attempted to serve that community by sending over shipments, containers full of food, medical supplies, clothing, and they were just giving it away indiscriminately in the community. And as our founder describes, uh, committed every crime in the book of how we should do charity in the world. <laughs> he said he reads talks of charity or when helping hurts and he it's like a checklist for everything that he did uh, in those early years. So that's that's where that was our genesis story. Our origin story was uh, going in and creating all sorts of problems. Local pastors asking us not to come back, uh, but it was out of those conversations that Jeff uh, stumbled across this idea of microenterprise development, microfinance, where he would be able to instead of giving away stuff indiscriminately, help people in these communities to provide for themselves by providing. Savings, access to savings, access to small loans to invest in their businesses and biblically based business training. So that began in 1998. Out of this failure, launched a microfinance program in Ukraine in that community and made 12 loans to 12 entrepreneurs and did the business training. And they all repaid the loans, which was a surprise to everybody, including Jeff. Even his own mother did not think that it was going to be successful. <laughs> but they repaid the loans and kept making more of them. And, and now, Hope works with our partners in 16 countries around the world and from serving 12 entrepreneurs in 1998 today up to almost a million uh, around the world. So it's just been a spectacular story of God's grace and uh, stumbling into success. It's been a really fun journey. And my role at Hope as Chief Advancement Officer is that I lead our marketing development and integrated strategy teams at Hope. And in that role, I'm responsible for all of the donor-facing aspects of the work that we do and the the ways in which we communicate Hope's message to the public and serve our integrated strategy team, which helps to to provide a lot of the cross-cutting disciplines within the organization, like our impact evaluation and spiritual integration, uh, to ensure that we're really growing as an organization, not just in numbers of people we serve, but growing in how we go about our work. So that team's really committed to the how. That's cool. And how long have you been with the organiz- organization? 
13 years. So I started with Hope when we were still a small nonprofit back in 2006. And yeah, it's been uh, over 13 years that I've been working here. That's awesome. Now, as you've been a part of the growth of the organization, what has been one of the hardest lessons you've learned as a leader within Hope International? When I started, microfinance was called by many the silver bullet that was going to solve all of poverty's problems around the world. There were actual articles that said as much in the New York Times and Boston Globe and Wall Street Journal. Uh, Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. The United Nations declared 2007 the year of microfinance. And I remember one of the leaders in the movement saying that microfinance was going to put poverty in a museum. And so one of the hardest lessons to learn in those early years, and I think has really been an ongoing lesson, is that uh, you can't believe your own hype. And mm-hmm. in 2009 and 10, when the story began to, the pendulum began to swing and research came, uh, began to come out and some stories began to come out of oversaturated microfinance markets where microfinance was creating more problems than it was solving, uh, all of a sudden, all of the positive stories that were out there turned into really negative, critical stories. And and so I think it was a really, for me, a really important lesson to to be very discerning about and very measured in how we assess the impact of our work, to assume we don't know everything, assume that we're pro- it's probably more complicated than we want it to be mm-hmm. in terms of the impact of our work around the world. So that, that's been an ongoing lesson, but it was a really deflating thing in 2009 and 10 when uh, I went from getting all my friends and Hope's donors sending me all these positive articles to, hey, I'm just reading this article about how people are over indebted in India and it's creating all sorts of problems uh, for, for these communities. Like, is that what you're doing? Is that what I'm giving to her? So uh, that's been a hard lesson. That's been one I've learned, I think, over the ups and downs of being through a couple of cycles at this point. That's that's interesting. So how, and I, I don't know if we have time to go into the the crazy details of that or the minutia of that, but um, what are maybe some 30,000 foot view things that you saw that were the cause of that pendulum swing? Well, I think part of it is there's nothing all that newsworthy about an intervention to alleviate poverty, making incrementally positive changes in the lives of people. Mm. You know, there's, there's, there's just nothing about that that's compelling uh, from a kind of like, is the Wall Street Journal going to post an article about it? Right. It's far more interesting to say microfinance is, you know, it's the silver bullet. Like, oh, that's a story. Um, it's it's going to solve all the problems. They got. Or, or the flip side, microfinance is creating more problems than it's solving. You know, those are stories that news uh, outlets want to publish. So right. that's part of the dynamic. And I think riding the wave of, all right, let's sift between the, the hype and the critique and figure out where truth is, because it's probably between those two things somewhere. And then the, the other thing in terms of the pendulum, I think that there's a level of uh, confusion that comes when you're talking about, I mean, it's hard enough to figure out like what's happening in our, in our own backyards, mm-hmm. but there's also, I think, an added dimension of, of when you're reading about something that exists in a place like Zaporozhye, Ukraine, it's just tough to get your arms around it for an American audience, particularly, uh, or any, any, anyone outside of that community. It's really tough to know what's true and what's not. Right. So I think that's part of the dynamic as well. You're trying to generalize or summarize how hundreds of different contexts and different in different lives within those contexts, and 
the reality is it's a lot murkier than we want it to be. Hmm. I mean, that that's probably a whole another discussion in and of itself. So uh, I want to transition a little bit and stay on topic, um, what we discussed offline. But uh, as as Hope International has grown, how have you guys managed the growth and change within the organization? I, you stated that you've been with the organization for uh, a good portion of the organization, especially that the early growth. Uh, what what if can you? What are some some what's some guidance that you can give organizations that may be smaller in size and and are expanding and growing that would help lead them well as they grow and change as an organization? One thing I've I've learned over the course of my tenure with Hope is that you, there's no blueprint for this mm. and there is no strategy that you can copy and paste from another organization and apply to your own. Right. I'll I'll say that one of our maybe our core operating principles as an organization is that your best indicator of future success is past performance. And one way that's played out is in the the development and growth of our internship program. Uh, right now, we have about 120 employees working for Hope International in the United States. Last I checked, it was over a third of them came through our internship program because we're getting an opportunity for three months to see if someone's a good fit and, and how how well they understand our culture and see their attitude and their character. Mm-hmm. So that's been just a real, uh, it's been a real boost. Like that's, I think one of the reasons we've been able to grow as we have is just the exceptional people that have grown up with the organization. I think of our director of development uh, right now, Erica Quayle, who works, has worked for Hope for about nine years and she started as our president's executive assistant. And in that role, we got a real chance to see up like firsthand account of how she was doing and, what she was like as a leader. And over the course of observing her in that role for a couple of years, we recognized that she had real upward potential to grow into a development leadership role. Hmm. And we gave her an opportunity to do that. And she thrived in that role and took on roles, uh, responsibilities as a manager. And, and so I, I think, you know, being willing to take a risk on people who really have potential that really represent your organization well has proven to be a really helpful approach for us. And that's one of the reasons we've grown as much as we have is we've got this great core of staff members who really understand and love this mission. So you've pressed hard into this internship program that you guys have built out. Yeah. And taking risks in, in hiring staff that maybe lack some of the hard skills or the experience, but have the right character, chemistry. You know, mm. I think it's Chick-fil-A that talks about uh, character and chemistry being really critical elements for employee success. And we've just placed a really high value on that and leveraged entry-level positions as well as our internship and fellowship program to use that as a essentially a, a pool for future job candidates. And how many people do you have in your inter- internship and fellowship programs? It's typically about 20 per year. 20 per year. And then out of that, you you press in or, or insert people from those teams into your full time staff, and that's like 120 people. You said, yeah, I think I think about 120 in the U.S. And that, it doesn't always happen right after the internship or fellowship. Often it's two or three years, or even five years down the road. But gotcha, you, you get a 90 day job 
interview, uh, 90 day job interview with someone when they spend that time with you and get a real good sense of whether or not they'd be a good fit. Hmm. Now, are most of these people coming out of college or high school or both? Uh, most of them are, I think our, the youngest will accept an intern is they've completed at least three years of undergrad. Okay. And how do you guys think about your team development and organizational culture? You mentioned Chick-fil-A as being kind of like a a guide in some of the stuff that you do within culture. What does that kind of look like for Hope with your team development? We define our culture by the acronym PASSION. Each letter of that, obviously it's an acronym, stands for one dynamic Mm -hmm. of our culture. And one of the ways we ensure that that isn't just a cultural statement that sits on the picture frame on the wall or in a word documents, you know, buried deep within our hard drives is to actually celebrate it. We believe that what you celebrate gets repeated. So we celebrate that through shout outs, uh, each week or each, sorry, each staff meeting, which happens every other week. And, and we call out our, our colleagues who are modeling elements of our culture. So, uh, right now, uh, one of the things we're working on is a new strategic plan and, it's involves a lot of innovation and creativity. So staff member recently was called out for the I innovation in our uh, acronym and, and recognized for the work that she's doing and leading our strategic planning efforts. Uh, one of the S's in passion stands for stewardship. Uh, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we were really discerning about how we spend donor dollars. And so in the last staff meeting, one staff member was highlighted because uh, she was willing to host other staff members who were traveling uh, into town. So it saved us that money of not having to rent or pay for hotel rooms. Uh, so that, those are a couple of examples of the way that we sort of cultivate the culture. And, and the process of forming that statement, that acronym, was an iterative process we did with our team where we kind of worked together to say, what makes this place unique? And so once it was codified, then it was, okay, how do we celebrate it? How do we keep it fresh? How do we ensure that uh, we're not just allowing this to become this stale document. So uh, that's, I mean, one of the ways that, that we try and develop that organizational culture. We even do our performance assessments based on the PASSION acronym. So we include that as part of our annual review process to say how well, it's both self-assessment and manager assessment, say how well did I live out the values of the organization over the past year? And so just like a, a set of core values or a a purpose statement or whatever you, whatever have you, you're, you're making sure that this is a, a, a living document that's being used in practice and not just something that's created at the onset of whatever direction you want to go visionary wise, but you're, you're, and then pushed off to the side or, or crammed into your cabinets and never touched again. You're making sure that you're putting this out in practice on a, on a consistent basis. Exactly. Can you give some, Maybe some tips to small and medium-sized organizations around organizational structures as you guys think about how to develop your organizational structure as you grow? That's an interesting question. And I definitely recognize that what's worked for Hope doesn't and won't work for everyone else. Right. But one thing I, I think has been a real foundational pillar for us has been the importance of not creating too many layers within the organization and keeping the organization as dynamic and flat as possible. And I know that's not a unique hope practice, but the reality is that as organizations grow, the tendency is just to kind of increase the number of layers that exist within the organization. And we've tried to keep that at bay as much as possible. I mean, it's always creeps in and and happens, but as much as possible, 
it, it, communication happens through often super supervisory relationships. So, you know, if, if you're talking about a new initiative and it's going to go to your direct report, to her direct report, to his direct report, to his direct report, down to, you know, her direct report, um, you know, you're running a risk of uh, a lot of confusion coming in. So we, we really try and emphasize the importance uh, getting all of our managers to capacity where they're managing large teams so that you're you're not having a lot of that um, layering that can really create bureaucracy and I think slow down and, and take away from what makes a small organization fun. I remember a moment about three years ago when I was trying to get an, an idea across to a new colleague and it had to run through a committee and get checked over by HR and there was this like huge process like guys we're we're stripping the joy out of work. <laughs> by creating too many layers, too much process, like we need systems, absolutely. But there is a pendulum, uh, or there is a spectrum, right? And the pendulum can swing from we're totally fun and entrepreneurial and organic, and everyone has seven slashes in their job description because they're doing a bunch of different things. And that's actually there's like certainly hard dynamics with that, but there's also something really energizing about that. I was at Hope when we were that way. Mm -hmm. And as we've grown, the, the temptation has been that you overly formalize, overly structure, add too much rigidity, and, and then you lose a lot of what makes the organization fun to begin with. So so a focus on that, a much more relational, heavy structure. Now, I'm assuming with, with a decreased set of levels in your organizational structure, there's there's that puts more uh, responsibility on your management teams and and uh, requ requires more of them on a day to day basis. So how do you guys handle that? And how do you how do you as a leadership team say no? And and what does that kind of look like as you guys grow and try to stay with that original small organization structure or feel uh, or culture? How do you how are you balancing that? Does that does that make sense? It does. And it's not easy. And those are, that's an ongoing live discussion. I, I do think what you've touched on is a, a real place of tension for us mm. and trying to hold on to that um, dynamic as an organization as we've grown while also not burning out our key leaders. So one of the, and, and this is not an advertisement, this is just a reality that as we've grown a tool that's become really helpful for us this is just a practical thing but uh, we use 15.5 as an organization oh cool 15.5 is a it's a very simple weekly technology that allows or a weekly interface that allows you to take as an employee 15 minutes to rate and assess your week uh, at the end of each week and then that goes to your manager and your manager is expected to take at least five minutes to review and assess your week um, and so it's that 15 minutes from the employee, five minutes from the manager, and then you're rating the week too. How'd the week go? How are you feeling? And we use that. Not, it's not a perfect measure, but it's it gives us a pulse of how things are going, how are people are feeling. It allows us to gauge you know, what our employees are feeling in regards to their workload and work-life balance. But we want, we want our leaders to be doing more and taking on more, but to a point, right? Like not to right. the point that it's burning them out or they're working Sundays and working late into the night. Uh, but, you know, where they're being challenged and we're, we're getting the most of their leadership gifts, but also not stretching them too thin. Hmm. Um, this is a bit of a transition, but I think along the same vein, how do you guys, because this, this is a topic that's been particularly interesting for me lately as, as a, a leader of my organization, thinking about 
strategy and and trying to put in place strategies as you grow, visionary direction for the organization. Um, for for hope as a, I mean, much larger than we are. What is that? Where is that visionary direction coming from? And what is is it coming from Peter Greer specifically? Are you guys sharing in that? Uh, visionary direction for the organization as a leadership team? Uh, and then how do you guys balance strategy and putting in place strategies and putting strategies down on paper and then going and executing them with also making sure that you're pursuing the Lord's direction as the ultimate director of of Hope International? Like at the end of the day, it's his organization. And so we need to, just like any, or any Christian ministry, uh, we want to make sure that we're following after him and seeking his guidance for the the visionary direction of this organization. So what is that kind of, how does the vision and strategy flow down from your top leadership position and his relationship with the Lord in that vision through the rest of that leadership team? Does that question make sense? It does. Uh, one thing we've grown a lot in as an organization over the course of my 13 years is really developing the practice of listening to all of our stakeholders within this organization consistently. And what I mean by that is like when I started, it was, I would say we were, there was, it was a lot more CEO and kind of executive team driven Mm -hmm. than it is today, even though we're much larger today. And that's because we're now surveying the men and women that we serve regularly. We're surveying our field staff, regularly, our church partners that we work with around the world, we're asking them, how, how are we doing? Uh, what are your dreams for hope? How can we better serve you? What have we gotten wrong? What have we gotten right? And through a number of instruments, focus groups, survey tools, we, are, we have a, just a pipeline of listening that's happening all the time, even to our donors. You know, we have an annual donor survey that we conduct and staff survey. And those, those, honestly, that is a starting point for new ideas and innovation. It's not from our leaders. It's from the, all of our stakeholders coming up through and really asking the question, what are the themes that we're seeing here? What are the repeated requests, the repeated concerns, repeated questions? And, and as a leadership team, we're taking our marching orders from what we're learning from our stakeholders that we're serving. So uh, in terms of that second part of the question, how do we balance you know, following God's leading mm-hmm. in our organizational life and our strategy and design, that is, I mean, that is a, that's a question for the ages. And it's not one that we have answered. I think of Proverbs 69, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps Right, as being a good guide of, we're not called to just keep the car in neutral. We're called to make a plan that we're called, God says, the mind of man plans his way. So we set out a plan. This is where prayerfully, you know, kind of stopping and praying throughout the whole process. But this is where we feel like God's leading us. And at the same time, God's going to direct our steps. And there have been a number of really powerful inflection points in Hope's history where we were going one direction and God intervened and opened up a door for us to go a different direction. Oh, cool. And and we want to be open to that. Mm -hmm. We want to be open to that, even if it not necessarily fits within our, our plan. But I think that Christian ministries particularly can kind of err on one of two sides. One, they don't plan at all, mm-hmm. and it's kind of at the whim of the leader of the organization. Or two, they plan God right out of it. And there aren't enough, there's not enough intentionality about sort of prayerfully submitting the plans to God and tr- trusting God and allowing God to speak and move uh, in dynamic ways. So 
Uh, we we've gotten it wrong on both sides in the past. We have both we've made both of those mistakes. We're making both of those mistakes. I'm sure even right now. Uh, but that's the intent is trying to strike that balance between those two. Hmm. And then, so do you guys intentionally build out strategies to stay nimble to a redirection? For if the Lord was to say, "Hey, I want you to go this new direction tomorrow," like what does it look like? And and maybe you don't have the answer to this, but what does it look like to be nimble enough to say, "Okay, we can make those changes," and we're not so far down this other strategy uh, and program implementation that we can't we can't pivot and turn to his his new guidance and and direction i'll give you an example uh we for the first 10 years of our existence we ran microfinance institutions exclusively so these are nonprofit banks Mm -hmm. much like credit union in the united states that hope international for the most part owned and operated and in 2008 we had a request from the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Rwanda. And he said, hey, it's great that you're running a microfinance institution, that you're providing financial services and like banking for the like vulnerable populations of Rwanda. But there are actually a, a whole swath of people, maybe even a majority of people in Rwanda who aren't ready for a microfinance institution. They're not ready to step into a bank and they're more vulnerable even. Uh, and they're not being served, but you could serve them if you allowed us to partner with you by running savings groups, which is an intervention that doesn't involve a formal financial institution, but allows people to save and, and lend money to one another through the context of a local church. Mm. And that's not something we had ever done. I mean, other organizations had done it. Our great friends at Chalmers Center had done a lot of that, but we had never really done that. But it was, you know, the, the direct invitation, the letter to us from this uh, church leader in Rwanda, from one of the communities where we served. And so it caused us as a leadership team at the time to really ask that question, like, should we consider this? And so that's where I think when those Kairos moments happen, when there's that sort of intervention where, mm-hmm. where we, weren't, we weren't looking for that letter, but when that letter came in, we didn't just recycle it. We said, let's, let's actually pray about this and talk about it. And now, you know, over half of the people we serve around the world are served through savings groups, through local churches, not just through microfinance institutions. So it's been this remarkably powerful, rapidly growing tool that we didn't plan to, to do, to pursue. Uh, but it, it was really through this local church leader, uh, it really became a huge part of our ministry. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. How has Hope, uh, how is Hope working discipleship into your programs? And with your primary objective being microfinance development, how do you guys use that as a means to present the gospel? Our spiritual integration discipleship approach is uh, really manifested in three ways. One, in who we are. Uh, one, in how we work. Or two, in how we work. And three, in how we serve the church. So our discipleship approach is based on that, that model. Who we are, how we work, how we serve the church. So who we are, I mean, you, one of our amazing uh, partners in the Philippines, she, the director there, Ruth Kalenta, she said, uh, one of our principles is you can't share what you don't have. So first and foremost, discipleship begins with, are we falling more in love with Jesus? Are we learning to walk with him uh, more and more closely each day? And do we have this sort of culture where that's encouraged? Are we creating the space and the encouragement where our team members can more closely, you know, 
encourage each other and more regularly encourage each other to walk with him. And then in how we work, you know, that it's, it's about who we hire. It's about how we create opportunities for the people that we serve to go deeper in the faith. Uh, all of our meetings, the, one of the ways that we work is our meetings with our community banks around the world and our savings groups features the five W's, which is a, you know, basic checklist where you walk through a time of welcome, a time of worship, a time in the word where you're looking at our biblically based business training, a time where you're doing your work and then a time of wrap up. So that meeting format, again, it's, it's how we work. It's how we ensure that we're staying true to our mission. And then in how we serve the local church, we believe that the local church is God's plan A and there's no plan B for how he's going to uh, go about his mission in the world. And so we see ourselves as a parachurch ministry, not as the bride uh, of Christ, but as the bridesmaid to the bride. So our job is to make that bride look beautiful. So we, we really, as an organization, emphasize that we can't operate in the community if we aren't in partnership with the local church. And that's not just a uh, kind of like a checkbox, but it's actually core to our mission that we're holding our local bank meetings, like repayment meetings in local churches. We're inviting local pastors to minister and serve and provide support to those uh, local communities that we're actually creating our savings group ministry as a ministry operated by the local church, mm. not by us. So all of that is, is core to our, um, how we go about discipleship. And so, yeah, I, that's a kind of a broad, broad picture summary of it. I mean, we, as an organization, we, we just believe that when Jesus said a man can gain the whole world and still forfeit his soul, that he really meant that. And, and so we recognize that in this work of poverty alleviation, that we could be solving the problems of poverty and, and introducing at the same time the problems of prosperity. Hmm. So we believe it's critical for us to not only minister to the material and financial needs of the people we serve, but to their hearts as well and say, uh, this is what real, this is how we define hope at, organiza at our organization. This is not, uh, hope is not just having a bigger house uh, or having a, a a deeper bank account, but it's about finding our rest in the person of Jesus Christ. So everything we do is rooted in that principle. Now, how do you guys navigate that in in maybe closed countries where you're working, where Christianity is not is not allowed, or at least proselytizing on the streets is not allowed? Like, what does that look like to navigate those type of spaces um, in how you function and 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 work discipleship into your work and programs? Yeah, so the same the same three principles apply: who we are, how we work, and how we serve the local church. Even in the context where it's a bit, uh, let's say, like a bit less friendly to Christianity, uh, those three things can still happen. And so sometimes it requires creativity in how we go about that. Mm -hmm. uh, certain things we do in work hours within a community that's a lot friendlier to Christianity would have to be done during discretionary hours in some of the communities where we work. Uh, so there's definitely, uh, in every community where we work, we take th those three principles manifest themselves a bit differently. Uh, but yeah, the same three uh, apply even in those places. That's really good. Um, now I want to skip ahead and make sure that we have time to talk about your book. Uh, so we're going to skip a couple questions, but can you tell us about your latest book, Rooting for Rivals, and what need did you guys see in the ministry space that sparked the idea for this book? We as an organization, aren't great at partnership, haven't been historically. And I think for a lot of nonprofits, you're so focused on building your own little kingdom mm -hmm. that you can, even if you're 
a Christian faith-based nonprofit, you can miss God's kingdom entirely. And that that's definitely been true for us over the course of our history. Like there, there have been times we've been really focused on building up our organization, but not really concerned by what's happening beyond the boundaries of Hope International. Uh, one of the examples of this uh, in a different sector than ours is in the Bible translation movement where you know, a lot of these organizations were operating entirely autonomously from each other up until recently. Uh, we had a friend who early on in this process of writing the book who works for a foundation in Tennessee shared that three different Bible translators came to their foundation and asked them to fund the exact same Bible translation project for the exact same people group. Oh, goodness. And they went back and said, hey, do you guys know that there are two other organizations doing the same thing? And they, they didn't. Uh, they admitted that they like, didn't know that there were other organizations out there applying resources to the exact same problem. And so they, those groups, you know, it didn't stop there. Thankfully, it actually, that planted the seeds of a pretty incredible partnership and collaboration called Illuminations, which is bringing together most of the largest Bible translation ministries in the world to, to start sharing where they're working, sharing resources, raising money together, uh, operating interdependently as opposed to independently from each other. Yeah. And that movement has been, I don't know how much you've read up on it, but it's been, had really, compa- uh, really powerful uh, results. One of the, the most salient is that independently prior to launching this partnership together, those Bible translation agencies all estimated that the Bible would be translated into every major language in the world by the year 2150. And now, just a few years after they've begun working together, they are saying that they think they can get the job done by 2033. So wow. they've chopped 117 years off their greater mission because they've begun to work together as opposed to working independently. So rooting for rivals, that's the the basic premise. Like we're telling those stories and we're saying, here's how they did it. And, you know, Christians should be doing more of this because we share a lot in common with each other. Uh, we believe that, you know, as brothers and sisters in Christ, like uh, we need to be working together. God calls us to that. Jesus' longest prayer in John 17 is entirely about our unity. And, and our unity will be the thing we read in John 17 says, so like we are united so that the world may know of Christ's love. So this isn't an option for us. It's something we have to be doing. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So is partnership in the ministry space, space a growing trend that you see? Or is this an idea that is maybe new to how you guys are functioning and thinking and maybe some of these Bible translation option or uh, examples that you gave? Um, like, is, an, is this an idea that we're still a long ways off from effective ex- execution across the ministry and, and church and charity landscape? Oh, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's cliche to say it's spreading like wildfire, but it's, it's moving and it's, it is an exciting time for collaboration among faith-based organizations. I think the cultural moment we're in where our neighbors are increasingly skeptical of Christians has created a real environment for us to say, well, why? And part of it's self-imposed. Uh, we, we create all of our own organizations, 45,000, denominations, 85,000 Christian faith-based nonprofits. I mean, it's no wonder our neighbors look at us and say, are you guys on the same team or aren't you? So uh, it's really, I, I've been super encouraged about the illuminations and the Bible translators. That's one example. There are a bunch more like that, which have emerged in the last decade. Another I'll mention is every campus. Uh, this is a partnership between 30 of the largest campus, Christian campus ministries in the country who have said, Instead of us operating independently, autonomously, what if we put all of our ministries on a map 
And we said, here are all the college campuses in the country. Here's where we're working. And instead of becoming the eighth Christian ministry at the University of Colorado, <laughs> what if we instead said, which colleges, which colleges in the state don't have a Christian ministry? And let's, let's go there and let's, let's be intentional and creative about going where there's need, going where there's opportunity. And so again, that didn't exist five years ago. And, and now there's a map, everycampus.com, which outlines like where the Christian ministries are, where there are still needs, invites, uh-huh. for, invites people to pray for those campuses. So those are two examples, but I could share a lot more of ways we've seen uh, ministries really taking this to heart. So how would you encourage an organization, maybe an organization that does similar, the same work as another organization, how would you guys encourage them to make that first uh, outreach to say, hey, let's partner together to do this together because we all have the same mission, whether it's water or housing or you, you name the vertical. What, what, would you, what would you recommend for organizations that want to start partnering well with other organizations that do similar work? Mm, yeah, well, collaboration and partnership starts with friendship and friendship starts with hours together. So I think that's the first step. If you look at the illuminations, collaboration, you know, mm-hmm. we can look at the results of that, celebrate. But it started because executive directors from these ministries committed to spend one full day a month together at the Dallas Fort Worth airport. Oh, so cool. they flew in, spent the day together, flew out that night. And, you know, everything good that's come out of that has come because of trust and relationship and friendship that's been built uh, among those leaders. And I know the same is true with every campus. Uh, the same is true with like Young Life, Youth for Christ, InterVarsity, uh, NAVs, a few others, they, their executive directors or CEOs and spouses uh, spend time together every year. So partnership begins with trust and it, it begins with relationship. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the, I mean, the best first step, in my view, is to say, um, don't start with, hey, let's collaborate. Start with, hey, do you want a cup of coffee? And let's get together and get to know each other a bit more and really become students of each other's organizations mm-hmm. uh, and understand like what unique things we do, what unique challenges we face and, and not trying to get ahead of yourself, I think is, is really critical. That's good. Now I haven't read the book. I've got it on the, on my desk as, as one of the books that I want to read, but I get, I did a little It'll bit of research. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it was. I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been told a lot of, a lot of cool things about, about this book, but, uh, Based on the research that I did do about the book, one of the summaries I saw about the book and I, I read in the preparation for this interview is that said, Christ-centered nonprofits have a unique opportunity to link arms and collectively pursue a calling higher than any one organizational agenda. Now, I absolutely agree with that. But for just the sake of argument and to press in on this idea, sure. how does Hope think, think about building a brand with a loyal donor base all while rooting for your quote-unquote competitors um, working in that same niche. So, for example, there are quite a few microfinance nonprofits around the world. Right. right? So, Hope, right. Is, Hope is building a brand, a brand of, and, and brand development at its core um, is relevant so that we can differentiate our brands from other brands. So, how do you balance the communication to your uh, brand and its differentiators, all while promoting organizational partnership with other organizations doing the same thing. Well, I'm going to start with a bit of a, uh, I would say maybe a bit of a, a roundabout way of answering that question and start by saying it's our legal obligation to do it. I think one of the 
confusing things for nonprofit leaders is we we go and we pick up copies of books written by for-profit private sector business leaders, even values-driven or Christian business leaders. And we think, okay, let's copy and paste those principles mm-hmm. into the work we do. And much of what, what they write is applicable. And yet market share is not a concept that nonprofits abide by. Right. Uh, we exist our legal charter and the way the reason that we have a tax advantaged system for nonprofits is we don't exist to increase our market share. We increase or, or to you know increase the revenue of our organizations. We increase we exist for the good of the public. Hmm. So if that's true then it's going to mean, if we believe that, if we believe that the law and our mandate is true, that we exist for the good of the public, it's going to mean that we are willing to even decrease in size and sacrifice our quote-unquote market share of microfinance for our, you know, for our sector if it means that the public is served better than it is right now. Uh, so, I mean, practically, it's hard. And it is difficult to communicate in a way that doesn't confuse the public. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we try and be really clear about who we are and also really generous with our platforms. And so you know, a couple of examples of that, uh, we th- this past week was Giving Tuesday and we used it as an opportunity to send out an email to our database and post on our blog five organizations that we love. And, and we said, we're you know, giving away Giving Tuesday. And and so there is like there, <laughs> a lot brilliant. of people are like, wow, that's so great. Like, that's so awesome. You guys are doing that. Like, how cool. And yes, it's true. Oh, but also, by the way, it's our most read email of the year, uh-huh. uh, most read blog post of the year, because it's interesting. You know, we're not just telling you another story of someone's life who's been transformed by Hope International's ministry. It's surprising. It's interesting. Right. So, you know, we're really, I think we can build the brand of hope even while we're doing things that maybe aren't hope promoting. And so we've tried to just really take risks on how we do that. Uh, another way that we've done that is we have an annual retreat where we bring our entire marketing and development team together for a training. And over the last decade, we've invited other nonprofit development directors to come and participate in our training and be a part of it. And, and we just share open-handedly everything that we do because we, we believe that, you know, that the, the Americans and, and philanthropists around the world, they're not going to give more because of us competing with each other, they're going to get more because they're inspired by something bigger. Mm-hmm. And right now we know that giving in this country has been stagnated at about 2.1% of gross income. And we believe that's going to grow to 2.5 or 2.8%. It's going to happen through radical collaboration, generosity, open-handedness, not by <coughs> excuse me, making the case for why Hope International is the best microfinance institution and all of our competitors uh, are flawed. So that we're just, you know, we're, that's just our theory of uh, our theory of change is that people will give more when their hearts are enlarged and and when their hearts are when their hearts and minds are inspired. And to do that, we're going to have to to change the way we market, change the way we talk about our work. Well, and it's a it shows that your belief in your purpose as an organization is so strong that you're willing to say, hey, if if the Whatever we're working towards as an organization, say it's, let's just for ex, uh, example's sake, let's just say it's slavery. If, if slavery ends in, in 10 years because uh, we promoted other organizations that work to fight and end slavery, but our organization 
suffers for it financially because people choose to give into other organizations that are fighting for that same cause. Like you're showing as an organization that you believe in that purpose so strongly that you're willing to sacrifice your organizational uh, growth to see that cause ended. And, and when people see organizations with that kind of belief in what they do, uh, I think, I think some really exciting things can happen. And so it, one, it's, it's making sure that you're clear on your purposes as an organization and then taking actions on that purpose that may be counterintuitive or, or countercultural um, in, in how you communicate to your donor base. We believe in this so strongly that we're going to do some crazy things to see this end. That's right. Yeah. And we, again, I want to be clear. We don't always do this perfectly. We, we don't always get it right. But I mean, this is like our hope as people of faith is in the person whose success look like death on a cross. Right. And that, that, that is a, that cruciform vision of success should be what drives our organizations. And it, it could mean that we, we close down. It could mean that we plateau, that we stagnate. But if that means that the kingdom of God advances, mm. that that is a win. And success sometimes looks like a man hanging on a cross, and it doesn't always look like up and to the right growth and shiny, you know, uh, brochures. Right. It doesn't always show up that way. And as Christians, we can be okay with that, uh, and not okay with it, but like like oh, our organization had to close down because these other organizations did our work better than we did, and. Uh, and we just decided to support them instead. Like that can be a version of success for for someone who follows Christ. Chris, we're going to end the conversation right there because that was such a good word. Um, that was awesome. I I so appreciate you being on the show. Uh, can I pray for you and hope as you guys go out and yeah, that'd be great. finish your that, year? Absolutely, Father. I just lift up um, Chris and his team and the leadership staff within Hope International. I lift up Hope International as an organization. Um, you are just working through this organization in incredible ways, and I pray that you would continue to do so, that you would uh, expand their reach and impact for your kingdom, Jesus. I pray that they would finish out their year strong. If they've got year-end giving campaigns that they're pushing hard, that uh, you would just move hearts to um, invest in this organization and, and see your name glorified and, and your kingdom come. Father, thank you so much for what these guys are doing, and uh, I pray blessings on their organization. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, Chris, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for being on the show, man. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.